0: All right, hello, welcome to the Launch Notes podcast. I'm Blake from Launch Notes, thrilled to be joined today by Chris Butler. Chris is a lead product manager on Google's core machine learning team. He's got experience in product orgs at a ton of exciting companies like Facebook, Waze, and Microsoft. He's also got great experience standing up and running product ops teams, which we wanna dive into a lot today. Chris, welcome to the Launch Notes podcast. Thanks a lot for being here today.
1: Great, thank you for having me.
0: I'm, I'm excited to talk more about Product Ops. Maybe we can start with just kind of a, a quick overview of your background and your journey into product work, how you, uh, how you got into this exciting world to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you
1: know, I, I, I grew up, uh, my, my, my dad was a very creative person. He was an art director for print ads. And so, grew up around a lot of kind of the creative world. Um, I ended up being the mechanical for him to, you know, do stuff where he, you know, he was doing really old school graphic design, and I was using Quark Express and Adobe Illustrator, and even started to help him really build out the proto websites for a lot of his clients. So, from very early age, I was used to doing commercial work um, from a creative standpoint. Um, but then, you know, totally disappointed him by going into engineering school rather than art school. Um, and from there sold out even further, uh, after graduating to go into program management at Microsoft. And so, um, I guess like, you know, the, the things that I find really interesting is just always trying to figure out the new rules for a a new Mm -hmm. circumstance or context. And so like a lot of the job roles that I've had, they tend to have like technology terms inside of them because we don't know what to do with them yet. So it was like the transition from. Desktop, so- so, you know, desktop software to like web or uh, web to mobile, or the idea of like application of AI or machine learning or virtual reality or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these like kind of transitionary points for how we start to build technology that actually helps people in some way, and so that I think that that's something I find really interesting and really exciting. And then from there, uh, I, I'm always very interested in like high uncertainty types of situations, which is why I think I'm drawn to product management as um, just being able to understand what is the appropriate uncertainty, what things should we make more certain for our teammates that, that want more certainty, like designers or, or engineers. Um, and then how do we really kind of continuously evolve with the marketplace, with our customers, with the world itself? And so I'd say that's what's really driven me across my various experiences and definitely a lot of different types of experiences as product manager.
0: Yeah, I got to tell you, are taking me back to my college newspaper days with the Quark and (laughs) Illustrator references there. That's (laughs) (laughs) totally,
1: I was, I was on the high school, I was on the high school newspaper and did a lot of the layout. I actually, one of the things I did back in high school was a, uh, um, the video game strategy guide company, um, where I was doing all the production for kind of layout of, of like street fighter
0: alpha uh, strategy guides. (laughs) So I I did a lot of design stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had plenty of, uh. I had plenty of late nights with, uh, doing, doing newspaper layouts in illustrator. So I know, that <laughs> I know how fun that totally. can be, and, but I, I love what you, uh, I love the phrasing around like figuring out the new rules and, you know, the references to platform shifts and not to go on a tangent, you know, about my old career, but it does remind me of part of, part of why I actually moved out of print newspapers into, hmm. into tech was, you know, it definitely we were feeling the, the rules changing and platform shift and, yeah. um, just wanting to get out of like reactive mode into sort of building the, you know, kind of building and, and deciding the, you know, the new future. So, um, that's, right. that's just like a really cool phrase. I, I think that's, uh, it's obviously meaningful to you. I just, yeah, really like yeah, that. And it's constantly changing.
1: That... It's constantly mm-hmm. changing too, because like the moment that we feel like we know what the rules are, um, the world moves forward, right? And and so mm-hmm. I think that there's a really uh, great kind of uh, managerial science paper from the 80s about dominant logic theory, which I, I, I reference a lot because I think mm-hmm. it's just trying to constantly remind myself and my teams that, you know, we may think we have figured it out right now, but there will be a change where The context is different. The environment is different. The customers are different. The problems are different. And so from there, Mm -hmm. if we try to apply our older mindsets or mental models or rules to the new Mm -hmm. world, we will be overconfident and probably make more mistakes than we would usually. And so that's my goal as kind of a product manager is to constantly remind people of this
0: evolution over time. That's amazing. Dominant logic theory. I'll have to, I'll have to look up yeah. that paper and, and, and find that as a reference and throw that out there. Cause it sounds, yeah, sounds totally. super fascinating. And these are, these are the most fun and challenging types of interviews because here we are two minutes in, I can already tell there's like seven <laughs> different things. It's like seven different things that I could probably spend two hours on each <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> totally. deciding where to go, but uh, appreciate the sort of breadth of, of, of knowledge you bring to the table. It's super awesome. Um, but maybe let's um let's start with uh product ops and mm-hmm. i know you've used the phrasing product managing the product management experience if i have that right yeah i'd love for you to unpack a little bit about what you mean by that mm-hmm. and kind of how you how that sort of shapes your approach to product ops
1: yeah i mean i the when i first started getting um kind of like learning about product operations, I guess I had always tried to do the things that product ops is trying to do, which I think is really, mm-hmm. you know, focused on how do we make product management teams as effective as possible in some mm-hmm. way. And um, what what I guess I've I've seen in other operations types of roles, like there's, there's basic business ops, which usually is out of the finance team, right? There's dev mm-hmm. ops, which is, we wanted to do a better job of handoff between engineering and operations. There's mm-hmm. design and research ops, which is more about like, Um, organization of systems and and things like that. And then even, you know, I think product ops has focused an awful lot, um, at least from the standpoint of say, Melissa Perry or Pendo has Mm. has thought a lot about it from the standpoint of how do we build better systems for product managers to use? Um, Mm. I guess I've tried to push it a step further, which is, you know, product managers as a group, we are constantly trying to understand our customers and build things that solve the problems that they have um, in some meaningful way. And so Mm. the reason why I kind of, say I'm PMing the PM experience is that, um, I, I don't, again, I don't want to mistake the wrong customer, um, that I'm really targeting because I think Mm. there is a hazard or an anti-pattern inside of product operations where, um, if you mistake the end customer as your customer, you will actually just do all kind of the, um, part of my French like bullshit work for product managers. (laughs) And so like Mm. PMing the PM experience means that I'm hyper-focused on the product manager as my customer. And, Um, I think there's two products that really come out of that, and and one of them is the community of practice, which is how do product managers work together, right? How does that community of practice interact with other uh, functions like engineering, design, um, you know, even leaders, Mm-hmm. And and then finally, you know, the second major component or product is really what is the individualized experience for each product manager? Because I think there's a lot of times that if we are very process centric, we think about the cohesion of the entire system or how well the system works, rather than the fact that the system is made up of people interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so that's why I think we need to constantly go between these two different kind of like viewpoints. And so I'm, I, I think that's something interesting about like product management in general is that mm-hmm. there's never like one perfect answer. And so mm-hmm. in the case of product operations, if we just over-focused on the individual experience, we'd never get anything done for the organization. But if we only focus on the organization, we would trample all over this idea that like people want to do meaningful work in some way and they want to enjoy their work and they want to work with people they want to work with. And so yeah. I think it's those two kind of like uh, points on a spectrum that I think are really interesting and important.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. And I'm glad that you, you know, I'm glad that you call out the sort of falling into the trap of just sort of doing like BS work, or maybe yeah. it's just sort of being in like reactive mode or sort of like a sort of servitude kind of function where it's just like, yep. I'll just sort of sit over here and tune things that the PMs tell me to do, or whatever that right. might look like. I think that there's, you know, probably two things that probably keeps a lot of smart folks, you know, at, out of the uh, product operations opportunity, which is is a shame. And also probably some great product operations folks get kind of fall into that trap. And, you know, I don't know, I'd love to hear any kind of like tactical tips or strategies you would suggest for folks to not, you know, to be sure they're not kind of like falling into that place.
1: Well, yeah, I think that the key thing is, is just making sure that there's clear expectations a lot of the time that when you're working with the product managers, your job is not to help them like, do customer work. Like, mm-hmm. I think that is one of the key things. The moment that you start being there to help with the customer, um, the end customer, um, mm-hmm. that's when you start to fall into this thing where it's like, oh, well, this, this product ops person is just there to make sure that my process is super efficient. And that sometimes means that they have to pick up kind of the glue between these processes. Um, mm-hmm. And so, a lot of the time, like, what I end up doing, uh, especially when starting on a new team, is really it's it's about meeting and talking to almost everybody on the team and then it's building mm-hmm. cadences to be able to get feedback from them on how well all of these different things are working for them and so you know a lot of the time i think product ops people are brought in and they're they're being told like hey i need you to go and like create this process around road mapping or i need a process around x y or z when the reality mm-hmm. is, is like what you should first do is understand what are the problems of the mm-hmm. actual community and what are the problems for the organization that product management could be solving better. So it could Mm -hmm. be a better roadmapping process, but it could also just be that like the roadmaps we have are not actually being read or used or updated in a way that makes sense. And so I think then Mm -hmm. you fall into this trap sometimes as a product operations person that Your job is just there to choose a tool for road mapping when the reality is is you need to really understand at a deep innate level what are the frictions that product managers are having in working better with engineering or design or whoever and so Mm -hmm. road mapping like like as a as a as a topic generally like the if a a leader is saying they need a better road mapping process it usually means that they don't they don't understand what the teams are doing and they don't necessarily have a high amount of trust for them and Mm so Just adding another road mapping tool or providing a different way for them to micromanage them is not going to solve that dynamic. And so the dynamic will be solved, though, by providing much better feedback mechanisms between the context that the leaders have and the context that the individual product managers have and finding ways that we can start to like, where should we align? Right. Mm -hmm. Like where are the times that we may be doing duplicative work across many teams? And again, I'm talking at a very large scale, right? The team that Mm -hmm. I work for is like a thousand plus people um, Mm -hmm. with like a very large product team. But I think when you talk about like smaller teams that are tens of people, it could just mean like, you know, how do we do a better job of actually having good conversations? How do we Mm -hmm. how do we do a better job of having good meetings? And so a lot of my time is actually spent coaching directors of product management so that they create better containers for the meetings that they have, um, or that, that they don't even, you know, I I think like one of the most worthless meetings is the hand down meeting where, you know, a director (laughs) of product will sit in a room and just talk at their staff for like 45 minutes. Right. Mm -hmm. When the reality is like, just send that as an email. You know what I mean? Or record it as a video and send it or like uh, like so that yeah. people can watch whenever they want to. What you want, though, is you want like a good discussion about like, what are the challenges? What are the controversies? What are the things that that really we should be focusing on to make sure we're like we're learning from each other? And, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. I, I did a talk that's that's called um, how to make um, learning look more like work. And it's 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 really a lot about how we need to learn an awful lot of tacit knowledge to be good at product management. And the biggest mistake we can make is thinking that The fact that a product manager is usually on a cross-functional team by themselves that they'll get all of the feedback that they need from other practitioners in their role and so rather than that Mm handout meeting we should be spending time to learn how does that senior leader think about decision making right how does Mm -hmm. that senior leader actually do this or how does how do my peers actually handle this type of problem and so i think there's Mm -hmm. there's way more we could do within product teams and i think product ops plays a, a a role in like reminding people of this like Part of my job is just to ask people, like, before this product review meeting, like, what are you hoping to get out of this meeting? And a lot of the time they're Mm -hmm. like, I'm not sure I was just going to do this meeting. (laughs) And so, like, you know, even just asking silly, stupid seeming questions like that will get you way more focused on, like, how do you actually make the use of time, which I would argue every team struggles with is time management um, when we get down to it. And it's because they do not properly prioritize their own time. They may be experts yeah. at prioritizing work, but they are horrible at prioritizing their own time. So, I spend a lot of time just like asking people, is this meeting necessary? Could this meeting be something else? So,
0: yeah, yeah, no, great great insights throughout all that. Really appreciate it. And I'd love to maybe drill into you you referenced a couple times sort of like scale of like large team versus small teams. Yeah. Are there particular benchmarks or markers or indicators for say a smaller product org that doesn't have product ops yet that Hey, it might be helpful or advantageous to you know think about a product ops function at this time.
1: Yeah, I, I mean this is something where I've seen ratios uh, within the industry um, that are somewhere in the range of like uh, there's a product ops person for every kind of group or cross functional team that's out there. Mm. So that's mm-hmm. that's like you know it's like one to two three four PMs um, mm-hmm. one product ops person to one two three four PMs. I don't, I think actually I, I tend to want to operate from a scarcity standpoint. Um, and what, what I mean by that is that like, I want, I, I've actually been in teams where the ratio was one to 50 or one to a hundred. And oh, wow. even though it was hard to get some things done, it meant that we were hyper-focused on that. And the biggest problem um, or like a anti-pattern I've seen for product office people is that they over-focus on process. And so then the team gets bombarded with new processes all the time. And they're never able to actually set up like a good cadence in how they do their work. And so I would just say like, I would prefer that we had less product ops people that were really hyper focused on the most important things to actually work on and processes to, to implement. Um, and then making sure that we're actually implementing them correctly, we're gathering feedback. And so to me, it's like, it's like slow product management, right? Like Mm. there's, there's like some, some value to that kind of, uh, calming and, and slowing down and, honestly, even for very large teams of product managers, you know, yeah. there is a real issue that they like from the abundance, you stop prioritizing correctly. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I kind of like feel like yeah. product ops people, for me, that's more important as to, it, it's not that we're going to like solve every single problem. Like a lot of the problem solving needs to be emergent out of the teams themselves because it's contextual. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if, if we see that there's a systemic problem Across all of these teams, that's the product ops person should be able to step in and one like push back on the managers. Like like one of the things I get as a, a request from a lot of managers, like I want a new status process. And mm. my question then is like, why do you want a new status process? And yeah, you know like what are the times it's actually worked? When has it been helpful? Um, you know what do you actually hope to get out of this? And if it's if it's more of a safety blanket, right? I can set up a lot of meetings where you meet and greet with people to understand the tempo of the business. But if it's really because you need to like intervene in decision making, that's a different problem altogether. Um, mm. And so, um, anyways, I, I, I'm very, yeah. Yeah. very anti-status, and and I I try not to be. But like, it's one of those things that's like, for a long time when I was just an individual contributor you know, if like, you wanted to know how my project is going, just come to one of my, my meetings. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you'll, you'll learn way more instinctively or, or kind of like intuitively from the fact of how we're actually working together rather than me filling out three bullet items that you're not going to read or understand because it's not contextualized for you.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, you're touching on a lot of really key stuff. I think that the, I wish more folks would take to heart. I love the, you know, I love the commentary around process and a little context. The last startup I was at, we were kind of a no code workflow builder tool. So we spent a lot of time with customers, kind of diving into their internal processes and helping them build out kind of workflows to manage each process and did a lot of process thinking. Um, and it's amazing, you know, so many you know, kind of these modern tech orgs that w- we are inside of, like, have gotten so modern and, you know, agile or whatever you want to call it around how you build the actual product. Um, but so much yeah. of the internal process thinking has not like got the memo or something or like the way we build like yeah. internal workflows, internal processes has not sort of like caught up or it's just like, we're doing like waterfall, like monolith style thinking with the way we do, you know, internal process. Yeah. Um, things are very sort of agile and iterative. On the product facing side but often the the actual like internal company processes it can be like you know like you said folks over focus on process they tend to try to like waterfall style build too much at once and then it becomes like yeah. very rigid and unflexible like treat it like you build product right. like start small get feedback iterate add and adapt and adjust over time it doesn't have to be this you know legacy style we built this mega process 12 years ago, and we got to, you know, we got to follow it to the T today, like no questions asked. So it's great kind of commentary. that's interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's why it's like so hard, I think, for people to also iterate on their processes that um, we don't take that mindset approach that we're going to experiment with things and then see Mm -hmm. what works and adjust. It feels Mm -hmm. like we have to, you know, in some way do this type of big bang kind of process Mm -hmm. change um, when it's actually not good. I mean, like I've, I've been, part of organizations that have seen a lot of like org change type of work. And usually the big, big org change kind of efforts fail, like it's some humongous percentage of them actually fail. But Mm -hmm. if you end up trying to find a way to build success inside of smaller teams around new processes and allow that to spread more organically it's much more likely to actually take hold and so i don't know one of the things i do a lot just as like a very tactical thing is i try to frame um processes as like here's the starting point this is a very like this is the beginning we're going to experiment with this and then here's the planned times that we're actually going to get feedback and evolve this process Mm -hmm. right and so i think that is really important to include because people There's like this fear that they get once you start saying that here's the new process they're like i'm going to have to live with this process for the rest of my life right yeah and that's scary for people right and and especially if like they've been burned by process change previously they're Mm -hmm. very likely to not want to do that type of thing so framing things as experiments framing things as very small efforts doing small pieces Mm -hmm. over time and then you know also just like giving people a break sometimes right like recently Mm -hmm. we were we've been trying to evolve this one process And, um, you know, people are just like, Hey, there's a lot of process change happening right now. And so I'm like, okay, well, so we'll take, we'll pause this part of it until later to try out, because again, it's, we're not there to be a burden. We're there Mm -hmm. to really help people be better at their jobs. And, and some of the time, like, yeah, maybe this actually goes to the idea of like, what are the constraints inside the organization, like enabling constraints from the world of like complexity, um, complexity theory is like, there's, there's a real value to actually setting certain rules. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like the idea of like why strategy is is helpful is because mm-hmm. if you could do anything, it becomes really hard to know what to do that's right. But if you set more specific kind of frameworks and that could be this over that statement. So I've done a lot of talks uh, around uh, yeah. like strategy and road mapping and things like that. But like if you're talking about as like tradeoffs, I think for people, they are more able to actually build out models Um, and then also end up building better prioritization methodologies from the standpoint that they have this like working set of like this over that, or here's the Mm -hmm. edges of what we want to do as an organization. And Mm -hmm. I think it's every leader's real kind of, it's their job to make those hard decisions much easier. And so if Mm -hmm. they don't do that type of thing, right, um, people end up going in a lot of different directions. There's a lot of like course adjustment that happens, which is upsetting, right? And there's like, alignment becomes harder to do, which is also costly. And so um, Mm -hmm. I think that's like, we talk about the constraints we build as far as processes, it's meant to actually make things go faster in certain cases or, or be more understood. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I, I, there's a great phrase from like the Navy SEALs about how like, you know, um, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And yeah, so I like, it's about this idea that as you build practice, you're actually doing things in a way that's much more kind of intuitive. And so I, I think of as mm-hmm. enabling constraints within a team or how you build better meeting containers. Yeah. Sometimes that kind of structure helps you actually get the job done faster, even totally. though people may feel like, oh, we well, well, are we constraining ourselves too much right now? So,
0: yeah, totally. And it's easy to lose sight of like the long term goal with these, you know, these improvements where it's like, yeah, you're intentionally doing something that you will then go do many many iterations of like you will have this you know status meeting or you know report meeting or handoff or whatever like there will be many many cycles of it so what you're doing in sort of tuning and honing the way it's done now is like it's an upfront cost but you're investing in long-term efficiency and you're investing in the kind of compounding effect of like hey we made this you know n percent more efficient smoother faster by taking the time up front and now we get to realize those returns over the next, you know, many quarters, years, whatever.
1: Yeah. And I maybe want to make a distinction too about effectiveness versus efficiency, because I mm-hmm. see efficiency is like a following indicator that you have a team that works well together. Whereas effectiveness mm-hmm. I think is like, are people feeling like the work they're doing is actually making an impact in some way? Um, mm-hmm. I think is, is, is a really it's it's a, it's it's more important to actually focus on from a product ops perspective because i think yeah. again an anti pattern you can fall into around efficiency is that like did we did we do something as fast as possible but the problem is is we didn't actually get people to um, align in the appropriate way, or we didn't make the best decision or something like that. And so I think the quality yeah. aspects of this are really hard to actually discern quantitatively, but they are mm-hmm. important for
0: us to like focus on. Um, so I yeah. always like to make that yeah. distinction. It was it's yeah. like, a, like efficiency versus effectiveness. That's a great, that's a great distinction. And uh, yeah, uh, good, good call out. Maybe, uh, maybe change gears a little bit. Uh, we talked a little bit before recording about, uh, just the kind of question around how technical PMs Need to be, and yeah. I know you've got some strong opinions on this. So yeah, I'll, I'll let you, you take it from here. Where, where do you kind of stand on the uh, PM, you know, technical skill yeah. uh, dilemma?
1: Well, I, I got you know the reason why this has been top of mind for me is um, I set a provocation during kind of like an extended leads meeting, um, uh, yeah. cross like cross functionally, and and definitely you know it's like one of those those moments where I, I I made a statement that I don't think you know product managers should not be technical. Um, And Mm -hmm. in fact, they should not be, um, they they work with very technical people, right? Like Mm -hmm. I I work on a team that is full of basically the best in the machine learning world (laughs) inside of Google. And so incredibly technical people, right? Like really, really smart, really, really understand the deep technical questions that are, that Mm -hmm. are there. Um, But when I said this statement that I don't think PM should be technical, it was like almost like a gasp from the audience (laughs) that was there. Um, But I think what what we fall into um, is that like, I've... I've been an engineer previously, I've actually worked as an engineer on projects, uh, where I was also a PM, and Mm -hmm. I would argue that I will never be technical enough, quote unquote, like there have been plenty of times I've done technical product management, um, interviews where people have said, you don't seem very technical. And the Mm -hmm. reason why they've said that is because I've focused an awful lot on the customer or the problem or user research or something like that. And I think when we talk about, like, who is meant to be technical, it's the people that are doing the technical work. And Mm -hmm. I would argue Mm -hmm. that we do a disservice to the team by not building the appropriate tensions where, you know, if there are enough technical people on the team, you need to have a way to to talk about the trade offs of these technical topics. But you as a product Mm -hmm. manager should not be making technical decisions. That's not your job. Mm -hmm. And so. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you know, I think like another analogy for this is like project management and product management. I see project management and product management on like a spectrum where Mm -hmm. um, there's there's an appropriate tension, which is that project management is very much about like reduction of known risk, not making mistakes, like not making the same mistake twice, like making sure that resources are not like misallocated, a bunch of stuff like that, right? Yeah. Product management is much more about pushing the envelope around innovation, embracing uncertainty, and not dealing with that like dealing with risk in a different way, which is like, yeah, how do we option yeah. risk to our benefit, right? Yeah. And yeah. and the thing is, is that I when I was at Microsoft, a program manager position was both of those things, right? I would do product management work and I would build Gantt charts and do like discussions with engineers to figure out like. How do we resource allocate in this particular thing? Now, I think that that that's a bad thing because the truth is, is you should be having that tension and argument between those two different roles. They're both mm. valuable roles as separate things. And you have yeah. to decide somewhere along the spectrum between them. Yep. I'd say the same thing yeah. happens with product management and engineering. Engineering mm. should be, you know, figuring out how to build something. It, they should be figuring out how to maintain it over time. And they should be thinking mm. about like, just how does the system evolve, right? Like Mm -hmm. where are the common failure cases? In the case of machine learning, it's even weirder, which is like, how do we build the right environment to then train a model that does the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. product managers are on a different part of that spectrum where it's like, actually, I don't care all all, that much about how you build it. I care more, is this going to solve a problem for a customer? Mm -hmm. And when we have a disagreement about like, we want to solve this problem. And one way to solve it is a way that the engineer says, but it's going to take way too long. The question becomes, what is the trade-off we need to make between those two people? And if you have a product manager, that's very close to the technical side of the world, I think they make the wrong types of trade-offs. And so that's my argument is like, I think, you know, now my, uh, you know, my VP of product, you know, brought up a really good point is like, you know, so, so how do you have these discussions? And I think like one nuance I'd want to make is that we need to have a shared language, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's absolutely true. It doesn't always have to be pure technical. It doesn't always mm-hmm. have to be pure customer or problem, but there's something in between that we need to find an agreement about as far as how to talk about things. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. just the second thing I would just add here is that, um, you know, so does product management, I think like in some ways, it's really interesting to me is that, so is, is product management, like what are the base skills that you need to know? And I, I don't know, maybe, like I wouldn't necessarily say that you have to be an expert at something like statistics t- to be able to work well with a data scientist, mm-hmm. right? I would say that yep. when we talk about like the philosophical or strategic discussions, maybe that's the core of a product manager is actually like how do we have good discourse? How do we ask the right questions? How do we how do we challenge the right types of norms or not even norms, but like false mindsets that we may have. So anyways, I mean, that yeah. that's my that my kind of my my, my thought on technicalness for PMs. And I think, I think it does a disservice to the developers and the engineers and, you know, the architects, frankly, um, where they are the technical ones and we should be asking them the good questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of, it it's almost setting unfair, low expectations of, of the technical teams or sort of like (laughs) unfairly underestimating like, their ability to like meet you with a shared language, like as, as experts in the field and, you know, topic at hand, like, you know, great technical folks can kind of find the path to communicate with you. It's sort of silly to assume that they wouldn't be able to.
1: That's right. That's right. And I, I think like, that's the thing is that maybe that shared language is the part that we should be talking about because it's like, yeah, I do need to know terminology about machine learning to be able to have a good discussion with an engineer. Mm-hmm. But but also like finding those shared analogies helps us maybe like reframe things in some way. And and yeah, I agree with yeah. you. There's like once you start getting to be being a very senior engineer, you know, we have a title called uh, Uber Technical Lead, which is like a very senior kind of individual contributor, usually um, engineer, mm-hmm. like once you get to that level, you are thinking an awful lot about like, are we building the right thing? Not just like, are we building well? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, I think there's like, there's something very interesting about that. And and yeah, I, I I think all those people that are engineers, they do aspire, I think a lot of them to at least do a better yeah. job of building the right thing because they see after yeah. like a couple years in the industry, if they build something that's no, not used by anyone. It's a waste of time. Right. Yeah. And so I think they want to have those discussions too, but we need to have the right types of, and and by the way, like, I think this is why using like the Venn diagram for product management is like a disservice to the field as well, because it's not just like, it's not just engineering and business and design, but it's like, there's lots of uh, stakeholders or teams that we need to build appropriate tensions with. Like I, I tend to use like legal um, and compliance mm-hmm. as like an example of that is that if you did everything that legal wanted you to do to reduce risk in the marketplace, you would never do anything new. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. working with them to figure out like, what are the appropriate, not just, not necessarily risks, but like, what is it that we we should do because we know it's the right thing to do, right? That, that's That's mm-hmm. one thing. And then there's yep. this idea of like legal compliance, which is what reports do we need to build or who do we need to notify or who do we have to have review things? That's very different than the idea of like, not being able to do a particular feature like and, and mm-hmm. i worked you know at uh, at facebook mm-hmm. reality labs on the portal device and there were a lot of things just around like biometric recognition that were very challenging um, mostly because sure. of the baggage that facebook brought <laughs> to things like biometric sure, sure. recognition yeah. um but but appropriately right and so we oh, we yeah. had to have a lot of conversations with all these teams like legal security privacy Safety mm-hmm. um, compliance, and because the truth was, is like we needed to take a lot of care in building the right thing, and so mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's what I'd say is like I think we we need to yeah. do a better job of of building those types of trade-off discussions. Engineering is one, but that's like yeah. saying that I need to be like a legal expert, right? Exactly, and that seems yeah. ridiculous as well, right? Yeah. Or a design yeah. expert that seems ridiculous. So, so to yeah. me, it's like being overly technical as a PM. And and here's the thing is I think what what some of the PMs on my team kind of um, are kind of upset about is that they are very technical people, right? They themselves could probably be architects, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are very smart. They're very technically adept. But I guess what I'm trying to make the argument for is that I want them to focus on something that actually is within their role um, Mm -hmm. more appropriately. Now, there's always hybrid roles. I've done lots of hybrid roles where I've been like a business development and product management hybrid. Um, and I've enjoyed that type of role, but I found that like I preferred product management rather than business development. And so I'm a very, you know, friendly BD person yeah, um, yeah. and love doing partnership discussions, things like that. But to me, it's like product management is the role that I've chosen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this it's all a great discussion to have. And I've, I've seen a lot of PMs and, and personally I fall into this too, where it's like, you can get so almost obsessed with like, untangling the, you know, untangling the input from the technical team or sort of like decoding, like the conversation from the technical team that you forget, like really your job is to do the other side. Like your job is to go to technical or legal or whatever it is and say like, great. Thank you for like coming to me with your sort of context and concerns and commentary. And, and here's mine. And here's where product management is coming from. And here's our priorities. Here's what we found. Here's sort of my version of bringing some, bringing the, you know, my perspective to you. And and a lot of folks sort of can get caught up in in the former and forget the latter in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I I think that's the real problem is that as product managers, we are meant to be decision facilitators in some way. I think project management Mm -hmm. does this in a slightly different way too. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is is like an interesting point, which is like, who is the business decision maker in the end? Mm -hmm. And so a Mm -hmm. lot of people will end up using kind of uh, you know, sometimes it's product management at Google, it's a very engineering driven organization. Others mm-hmm. will use a GM model. And so I think like this deciding how to decide is also like a really important question because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've always believed in something that's called consent over consensus as, as kind of a default mode, which what that really means is that in a cross-functional team, and this is called balanced team as well as like mm-hmm. a, a moniker, but, um, that as a cross-functional team each person has a slightly different kind of domain um, for decision-making. And so engineers will make technical decisions, right? We c- I can yep. give them feedback on the technical decision, but they make the final right. technical decision. And right. so I think like I've seen this pattern where product managers that fancy themselves as very technical, they will question everything that the engineer does. And so like the estimate mm-hmm. they gave, they'll say like, is it really that much time? And, uh-huh. you know, like, and rather than saying like, okay, well, if we had to do something that w- like, if we only had a weekend to do something, what would mm-hmm. we be able to get done? Or what could we experiment with? Those are appropriate questions. But saying, mm-hmm. I think your estimate is wrong is is like basically removing this whole decision making authority and kind of agency autonomy from their role. And so that, that I think really worries me a lot in these like highly technical PMs. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. I think I've definitely gotten clashes with people where they're like, You know, can you squeeze out more work from this team? I'm like, no, I trust the team, (laughs) right? Like, the team decides what they're appropriate to do. And actually, like, again, I'm 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 not going to go on a rant about estimation and versus (laughs) forecasting and things like that. But but like, um, I think like it's more appropriate that we say like, let's just work on the most important thing right now. Let's let's have like a a strategy um Mm -hmm. to be able to take us in the right direction. And I would argue that that strategy. And roadmap and backlog need to be aligned right now, rather than some future looking thing. And so from that mm-hmm. perspective, I think there's, once you start to have that kind of framework, I think we we stop remove, we start to remove all this need for like, micromanagement of the engineering team and how they
0: estimate, right? Like, yeah.
1: let's just work yeah. on stuff. And let's figure out when the appropriate time is to release it.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I love that. uh, I love that note around deciding how to decide. And I think that's such like, it's, it's like the, you know, the, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And it's like, sort of, how do we come to these decisions? I mean, what else? I mean, anything else that sort of like helps you sort of wrestle with that question?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like just breaking out from the fact that So like in in both Facebook and Google, I found that they were very consensus driven. I'd say Google is very, very consensus driven. And that means that everybody kind of has to agree to move forward with something. Um, That is the default here. um, But I would argue that there's many other ways to make decisions, (laughs) right? And so there's a really great app that um, by the, I believe, called the decider, which is essentially, there's also like a Slack kind of plug in and everything. Um, But at the very bottom of the screen, uh, like in the, in this decider app, they have the eight different types of decision-making frameworks that are, they kind of like identify there's, there's, there's definitely more. And I've, I've read like textbooks on decision-making and some of the most dry reading I've ever read. (laughs) Um, But like, (laughs) but like, you know, consensus is one, right. Um, Another one is like consent where it's, it's less about the idea of everybody agreeing and it's more about just like, does anybody veto this? Right. Got it. There's yeah. also autocratic decision making, which is that this person makes the decision. Um mm-hmm. and then my favorite, one that I've been exploring a lot more, and I've I've done some talks about this, but like stochastic or randomness in decision making um mm-hmm. as a way to like get at um I, I I've done some talks about this, but I think like a lot of the bias we end up having is because we're using preconceived notions that may no longer be valid. And so using randomness especially in like ideation and like the idea of like divergent and convergent thinking, I think gets yeah. you into this realm of like, you're able to actually consider more. Now there are times, right. When if, if the team is at an impasse and there's literally, everybody's like, I have, we have no idea which one is a better decision right now. Honestly, mm-hmm. flipping a coin and moving forward is probably a better deci- better way to deal with things um, than it is to be stuck in that gridlock. And um, there's been lots of books yeah. that have talked about like the value of information over time. Like, Um, how to measure anything is, is like a really good book around this, but, um, Mm. like there's a certain point that you just need to say, we're just going to move forward. And, and honestly, like, um, I think people should feel more comfortable with the fact that like, Hey, my intuition says this is the right way to go. And it's my decision as a product manager, or it's my decision as an engineer. So we're just going to move forward with that. And we'll adjust as time goes on, but there, I I don't know. I mean, here's another interesting, like, interesting, like weird tactic is that if you really want to know what decision you want, um, Mm -hmm. If it's like a this or that type of decision, when you flip a coin, you will know when the coin is in the air which decision you really hope uh, will happen. Yeah, it's like what's um, that gut feeling? Yeah. you know, exactly. Like,
0: the the game's on the line. Like, what do you hope it is right now? Before I let right. my hand off the coin, you're just like well, you're, you might catch that. Yeah, that's a, that's great advice. Yeah, yeah,
1: and and yeah. and I think the other thing that comes from decision science a lot of the time is like you know there are usually not just black and white decisions. There's usually like nuance, and so you you know if yeah. you if people are having a hard time deciding, I say, like, can you, like, load up six different kind of plans that could work, mm. right? And then mm-hmm. you can do the same thing with, like, rolling a dice. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And and so anyways, like, I, I think there's, like, a bunch of tactics like that that help you kind of understand things better. Um, people feel mm. really uncomfortable using randomness though because they feel like it's just very flippant. but i would I would argue again that they're like there's there's like some real value in using certain techniques like this within mm. the team dynamic. It's just problem is like sometimes yeah. you have to do it secretly. so like sometimes <laughs> I would just like yeah. flip a coin secretly um, yeah uh,
0: around these types of things. but, but anyways, like I, I think there's a lot about
1: intuition that product management
0: yeah. uh, really needs to build over time too. That's so interesting. I'm, 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 I'm going to start trying this out. So if anyone on the team's <laughs> listening, you see me like flipping my camera <laughs> off, so I can flip a coin in the background. But you know, it's interesting. Like I, I've done some of this. As you talk about it, I realize I've done this like in my personal life. And I think you know, a lot of folks who sort of, I don't know, if you're like me and can kind of get to be kind of like a heady analytical person, you can get into the trap of analysis paralysis. I'll do that I'm right. just like personal chores and stuff like that, and this sort of something I've been telling myself lately on things like that and using it to work a little bit is just like, you know, picking something and having it be the not ideal thing is more ideal than considering, you know, continuing yeah. stagnation, continuing to yeah. be sort of stuck in analysis paralysis. Like even if it's, you know, hypothetically ideal, like the 10th most ideal thing I could be doing, like, yeah, that's better than doing nothing. It's better than that's continuing right. to sort of just like stew in paralysis because you can't make a decision so yeah that's that's great but i had not thought about sort of um implementing that to the team and kind of bringing that to the workplace and it sounds like there's you know kind of a whole you know a whole world of kind of thinking and text around that that's super interesting there's there's been
1: kind of like an evolution for me around this like kenneman who did you know the thinking fast and slow Mm -hmm. really rails against these ideas of like Biases that we have in our thinking processes, and there's a reason why we have them. It's because we need to make decisions with little information and a fast time period, things like that. There's a reason why we yeah. have these biases, and then there's yeah. someone Geiger um, Geigerziner who talks a lot about like how the, there's value in heuristics, and so a lot of the time mm-hmm. in like the medical profession, they'll use kind of fast and thin heuristic to make decisions, like to do mm-hmm. things like diagnosis, for example, because mm-hmm. it's, it's very effective, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. always help in the edge case or not edge cases, but like special cases. Mm-hmm. But there's a really interesting study that I I recently came across, which was that for all of these like kind of cognitive biases that we have, um, mm-hmm. a lot of them are actually fixed through team dynamics. And so mm-hmm. there was a particular cognitive task that they would give people. And, um, if people did it by themselves, it was like 20% of the time they would get it right. If you put Mm -hmm. them in a team, 80% of the time they would get it right as a team. And so I think what's really interesting about this is that we, we, we work in teams, we make decisions in teams. Um, Mm -hmm. there may, maybe the product manager is like forcing a decision, not always making the decision, right. Mm -hmm. Or, or helping guide or facilitate the decision. Mm
0: -hmm. But I think
1: there's something that we definitely have a lot of work, work to do that, especially in a world that is Um, partially remote or Mm -hmm. relying more on asynchronous documents. Mm
0: -hmm. I think there's a
1: real value to how do we do a better job of discourse through these documents to get to better decisions as a group? Because right now, like definitely I've, there's, there's been some stuff around like Google, like we use Google docs and there's a lot of commenting that happens on these Google docs. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't work out quite the way you want it to. Right. It it Mm -hmm. feels kind of overwhelming sometimes as the document owner, because it's all this feedback. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Some of the time it's like, should this person even be giving feedback on this document? Like, um, Mm -hmm. and then there's this whole issue about like uh, um, uh, Derek Silver has talked a lot about like how managers should not give their two cents on things because people see them Mm -hmm. as kind of like marching orders or requests. Um, And so there's all these like weird dynamics in the async world that I think like, there's a lot of work for us to do and discover. And and something I'm starting to dive into right now is like, how do we do a better job of asynchronous discourse so that Mm -hmm. we get the benefits of team dynamics um, rather than
0: just this idea of like individual thought. So I
1: think there's something really interesting about that as well, that that we have
0: not explored enough. I think that's great. I mean, I, uh, I, I myself too have been kind of playing with what are the right ways and how do we bring in more of like the the synchronous work when the time is right? Because there is such magic to yeah. that. And like Google Docs is a great example. That's right. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan, and you know, I'm a huge fan of asynchronous feedback and editing. I spend a lot of time in Google Docs doing, you know, doing editing feedback, working with writers, always have. And, you know, to kind of call back to my earlier reference from my newspaper days, one of the most helpful moments in that environment when I was, you know, a reporter is when an editor would say, Hey, slide your chair over. We're going to actually like work on this together. You know, we're going to go line by line and you're going to sort of see how I think. And so I always sort of see that as like the kind of like next level of a lot of Google Docs feedback or what it could be, whatever. I think engineers do a great job with, you know, they call it pair programming. Um, They do a great job with this. And it's like, how can we sort of, you know, even in the remote world, slide our chairs next to each other and kind of work through this together because that's something that I've, never seen replicated in, you know, kind of well, an async moment.
1: And we, we don't even do this right synchronously sometimes, which is that like, whenever mm-hmm. someone asks me, is this a good, like, is this a good roadmap or is this a good PRD or is this a good whatever? Yeah. Right. I ask, yeah. well, how have you actually experiment or not experimented? How have you done research to decide whether that's the case or not? Because it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what I think, honestly, like I, I have a lot of opinions about things, but,
0: mm-hmm. but honestly,
1: like what has been your people's reaction to your roadmap? Have they referenced yeah. it? Like if you, yeah. like in Google docs, there's the ability to look at like activity on your document. Do people mm-hmm. still go to it, <laughs> right? Like do people yeah. link to it? Do people yeah. talk about it? Like, do yeah. you bring it up in every meeting? And the, and so I think we're not, and then and then there's the other side too, is like, have you ever just taken this document, shown it to someone that you think is would really need to get value out of this, yeah. had them read through it, and then respond to you about what the most important thing was they got out of it, right? So yeah. it's like usability testing for documents. And so I think mm-hmm. there's like, there's a lack of that type of thing within async um documents like i've seen mm-hmm. people where mm-hmm. i joined this one team uh for a couple months where uh they had put like, if you read this, I will buy you lunch if you tell me that you read to this point in the document, right? So they're just trying yeah. to get like engagement metrics this way. And so I yeah, got the free lunch because I, I actually oh, like nice. read people's documents. Um, but, yeah, but I think there's great. like something that we could do better about this async stuff. Like if you look at mm-hmm. YouTube, there's actually like, what are the most popular parts of this like video? Like what are the most yeah. popular parts of this document? Right? There's, and so there's some that's... people in like the space like Coda. And, and, you know, anyways, a bunch of different document groups that are trying to go after this network groups, like notion and that type of thing. I think there's a lot more we could do around this. That is like, how do we do a better job of that idea of like, you know, um, how do you understand whether this document is valuable or not? We don't have a lot of good metrics about that yet, or, or even good
0: qualitative information.
1: Um, and so anyways, I think there's something really interesting in that realm as well, that we, we, we need to do way more about.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. This could be, I mean this could be a totally separate you know conversation absolutely but it's it's a great topic and it's like i really saw yeah. up, you know up close at at atlassian you know with mm. as distributed and sort of you know by uh, continental that company is along with mm-hmm. you know confluence like extremely heavily like writing and document fueled culture and sort of yeah sort of like seeing the potential of that and it's like you can tell like there's some magic in this and there's still like there's more territory out there, I think. And I think you're kind of touching on that too. It's like, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential for, you know, the kind of uh, the, the power of the document and, and teams using it the right way. Um, Absolutely. I tell you what, Chris, I, uh, I said at the beginning, and I think I was right that we could probably spend four hours <laughs> on each on 11 given topics here. Um, but um we'll uh we'll be respectful of <laughs> of your time yeah. today I appreciate it um let me wrap up with a super fun one this can just be quick any because yeah. I like to ask product people about you know uh, about products they like it leads to interesting uh answers any any products you've been trying out recently that you're you know uh that you're interested in or you think are you know compelling cool and this could be something at work or just sort of out in, out in the world
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think, and I've done some writing about this before too, about kind of like all the devices that are inside our homes. And Mm -hmm. so um, that's something that like, I I think I still worry that um, like the, you know, the devices that are in our kitchen, like I have a kitchen in my kitchen, a Google Home Hub that my kids Mm -hmm. are able to uh, play music on and Mm -hmm. it skews the recommendations that I get on my Spotify account. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it's like something that I've, I've liked recently, but it's been something yeah. that's been very top of mind for me is how do we do a better job of building technology into our homes that our, our, our kids, our spouses, like our visitors can actually, um, you know, play around with in a way that that is meaningful for them. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, for me, it's interesting, too, because like maybe this is a bit of a non-answer for your question, because, you know, I think of all technology as just intermediating humans. And so, um, oh, nice. from that perspective, yeah. like, um, it's more about the interactions that I have. So I, I tend to have like very boring answers in that, like, you know, mm-hmm. um, VT, like video conferencing, Google docs, like Twitter, LinkedIn, um, Slack for the communities that I'm part of, like, those are, those are all things that it's like, for me, it's about this interaction in some way between people. And, yeah. um, that actually is most meaningful to me. So I, 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 I unfortunately do not play around with like a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> um, at least not as, or I'll try it out. And then I, it, it kind of like just fades in the background for me um, a lot of the time. So I'm sorry if that's not the yeah. answer you're looking for.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's um, there's no, there's no wrong answer. And that's a really, you know, that's a really great <laughs> slice of commentary. It's, 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 a, it's definitely appreciated. Um, well, thanks for, thanks for joining us, Chris, like really appreciate the time. Outstanding conversation. If folks want to learn more from you or connect or say hi, um, what's, you know, where, where can they, where can they yeah. maybe find more?
1: So I'd be happy to connect on LinkedIn. If people are yeah. going to try any of these things, I'd love to hear, um, where that is, like how that goes for them. And then I do tweet occasionally on, uh, Twitter, uh, by my handle is chrisbot with a Z and a T mm-hmm. at the end, um, nice. it's a long story. <laughs> and, uh, um, but yeah, so I, you know, and I'm also on a bunch of different like product management and product ops Slack channels. And so anyways, cool. I'm always happy to engage. Yeah. I'd always love to hear how things work out for people. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm always trying to give back to the community because I, I've gotten so much help from other product managers inside the community. And so um, I'm always happy to, to engage and, and connect with people.
0: Awesome. Appreciate it. And if anyone listened to the, uh, all the way to the end of this, uh, reach out to me, I'll buy you lunch. So (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for being here today, Chris. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. All right.